some words from the letter to the Corinthians, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, what no human heart has conceived, sorry, I'll start that again. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, this is what God has prepared for those who love him. That'll teach me to take half a sentence out of context. Very often, when we talk about praying, we say it's like having a conversation with God. And we claim that it should be as natural as talking to somebody in our family. And then we come to church and use all sorts of weird and wonderful language. So I wonder what it might be like if we tried to imagine our prayers of approach actually as a conversation with God. So let's do that. Let's share in a conversation with God. Good morning, God. It's nice to be here again. What's that? How are we? Well, you know, mustn't grumble. Fair to middling. Could be worse. How are we really? Well, since you ask... Let's take a moment of silence to tell God what our week has really been like. So, anyway, life as usual. Sorry, um, can you say that again, please, God? Did we get the things you gave us? The everyday blessings? Well, yeah, you know, but, you know, they're just there, aren't they? I mean... You wondered because we just hadn't mentioned it. In the silence, let's thank God for the blessings of ordinary life. Yes, thanks for those, God. They're they're lovely. Um, Did I tell you about, well, I guess you already knew, but um, even so... Oh, you're not interested in my gossip about other people. You're interested in those moments of my week. Ah, right. Um, In the silence, let's offer to God the moments we regret for whatever reason, seeking forgiveness if that is appropriate, or release. Ah, oh, that feels better. Yes, it's, it's been good to talk. You'd like us to stay a while, to sit with you, to enjoy your company. Well, okay, but only for an hour or so, because, you know, we have got things to do. Gracious God, you search us and know us. Nothing is hidden from your gaze. Yet you love and accept us, are glad to share in even our most halting or distracted conversations of prayer. Please accept our words, our thoughts and our feelings 
for we offer them in Jesus' name. Amen. First reading this morning is uh, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 to 12, on page 722. The Lord says, Shout as loud as you can. Tell my people Israel about their sins. They worship me every day, claiming that they are eager to know my ways and obey my laws. They say they want me to give them just laws and that they take pleasure in worshipping me. The people ask, why should we fast if the Lord never notices? Why should we go without food if he pays no attention? The Lord says to them, the truth is that at the same time as you fast, you pursue your own interests and oppress your workers. Your fasting makes you violent and you quarrel and fight. Do you think this kind of fasting will make me listen to your prayers? When you fast, You make yourself suffer. You bow your heads low like a blade of grass and spread our sackcloth and ashes to lie on. Is that what you call fasting? Do you think I will be pleased with that? The kind of fasting I want is this. Remove the chains of oppression and the yoke of injustice and let the oppressed go free. Share your food with the hungry and open your homes to the homeless poor. Give clothes to those who have nothing to wear, and do not refuse to help your own relatives. Then my favour will shine on you like the morning sun, and your wounds will be quickly healed. I will always be with you to save you. My presence will protect you on every side. When you pray, I will answer you. When you call to me, I will respond. If you put an end to oppression, to every gesture of contempt, and to every evil word, if you give food to the hungry and satisfy those who are in need, then the darkness around you will turn to the brightness of noon. And I will always guide you and satisfy you with good things. I will keep you strong and well. You will be like a garden that has plenty of water, like a spring of water that never runs dry. Your people We will rebuild what has long been in ruins, building again on the old foundations. You will be known as the people who rebuilt the walls, who restored the ruined houses. And the second reading is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Salt and light. You are like salt for the whole human race. But if salt loses its saltiness, there is no way to make it salty again. It has become worthless, so it is thrown out and people trample on it. You are like light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on the lampstand, where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to do away with the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets. I have not come to do away with them, but to make their teachings come true. 
Remember that, as long as heaven and earth lasts, not the least point, not the smallest point of the law will be done away with, not until the end of all things. So then, whoever disobeys even the least important of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, whoever obeys the law and teaches others to do the same will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, then, that you will be only able to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. Here endeth the two readings. I'm going to start today by asking you a question. I want to know how many of you are aware of the Baptist and Congregational Trusts Act 1951. Well, you really should be because it applies to us. It's um, a very old example of charity legislation and it relates to the ownership of manses, certainly at least in England and Wales. Um, But just to reassure you, I put a question on the Baptist Collaboration Facebook group this week asking if anybody had a copy of it I could get a scan of. Nobody had heard of it. In fact, the only reason I know about it is I read Baptist Charity Bump and my previous church actually had a copy of it in their safe along with a copy of some um, emergency legislation in the Second World War to kind of allow marriages to take place a bit more quickly when people were home on leave. It's amazing the stuff that is in statute. This week, the Scottish Parliament passed a bill which will give us an amendment to the Marriage and Civil Partnership Bracket Scotland 2010, Act 2010. So it will become the Marriage and Civil Partnerships Bracket Scotland 2014. Whatever you might think about that, whether you agree with it, whether you don't agree with it, it is the law of this land and we are required to obey the law of the land we live in. I did a little bit of research uh, this week because I was really curious to discover what legislation had been passed since 1999 by the Scottish Parliament. Around about 210, 215 laws have been enacted. It depends which website you look at, how many there are. Um, The UK government and Scottish Parliament websites seem to agree, but Wikipedia managed to find a few more. Hey-ho. Do you know, for example, what the first piece of legislation was that was passed by the Scottish Parliament in 1999, what would be the first thing you would pass a law on? Would it be this? The mental health, brackets, public safety and appeals, close brackets, open brackets, Scotland, close brackets, act. That was the first piece of legislation that was passed, apparently, by the Scottish Parliament. Here are a few more things that they have passed. The Abolition of Feudal Tenure, Brackets Scotland, Act 2000. The Dog Fouling, Brackets Scotland, Act 2003. I guess dogs foul differently in Scotland from the rest of the UK. Uh, The Crofting Reform Act 2007. That one doesn't get Scotland on it. The Disabled Persons Parking Places Scotland, Act 2009. 
and very importantly, the Scottish Independence Referendum Act, 2013. All sorts of different pieces of legislation which we may or may not be aware of, but which apply to us. And that's before we start thinking about criminal law, or family law, or civil law. It doesn't matter how we see these legislative documents, whether we personally agree with them or not. As citizens of Scotland, we have to live in accordance with them. And likewise, at least at the moment, the UK laws, where they cover the whole of the UK, and European legislation, which we know is always a bit of a thorny topic. Is that impossible for us to do? Well, I'm pretty much sure it is. I couldn't possibly take in all that legislation and understand it. But most of us just carry along, quite happy, we don't know what most of it says, and we leave the work of interpreting and applying it to specially trained and experienced legal professionals. As we come to our second sermon, looking at aspects of Matthew 5, I think it's helpful to keep that at the back of our minds because it gives us a more sympathetic, informed and realistic approach to what it is that Jesus is going to say. Loads and loads of laws, we can't possibly know them all or understand them all. We're expected to comply with them, but we leave the interpretation and explanation to the experts. Last week's sermon was basically a scene-setting exercise in which we reminded ourselves that the target audience of the gospel was almost certainly Jewish converts to the Jesus movement. And likewise, we were told that, that reminded that the teaching was just given to those recognised by Jesus as his disciples. It was a bigger group, the 12. Um, so we have to align ourselves with the, the disciples, that these are the words that are spoken to us. Last week, we also noted the importance of beginning with the encouraging words of the Beatitudes. These were real people with real lives in all their complexity. And what was about to be taught to them was so radical as to be nearly, if not actually, impossible. And yet it was to these flawed and frail people that Jesus trusted his message, saying, I want you to carry on the prophetic role in your own day as you wait for and as you begin to model the kingdom of heaven. This week, the lectionary gives us just a few short verses, but they're just as significant in what they have to say. First of all, two familiar metaphors that Jesus, where Jesus, sorry, first of all, two very familiar metaphors before Jesus makes it plain where he stands in relation to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, and the way that the Pharisees attempt to interpret and apply it. The metaphor of salt, it seems so simple and obvious, doesn't it? We know and understand fine well what happens when you don't put any salt in a loaf of bread. We know that you can use salt as a preservative, or at least to slow down decay. We know it brings out the flavour in food. We know you can use it as an antiseptic or a mouthwash, and that actually it will lower the freezing point of liquids if it's uh, added to water. That's why we scatter it on our steps and paths. 
when it's, we think there's going to be some snow. We get what it is Jesus is saying. It's a straightforward metaphor, isn't it? The role of the disciple is to be like salt. A preservative in a decaying world, a means of savour in an otherwise bland existence, and, so long as the quantity is right, vital to health and well-being. Because we also know nowadays, don't we, that too much salt is bad for you. But what he goes on to say is a bit more difficult for us to get our heads around. This idea that salt can lose its saltiness. You would not believe how much paper and ink scholars devote to trying to justify their interpretation of that one little sentence. It's just nuts, in my opinion. Basic science teaches us that salt, sodium chloride, is a very stable substance and its properties can't fade away or be corrupted. But it does readily dissolve in water and perhaps this is the key, so the scholars like to tell us. Living in the 21st century, we're used to going to the supermarket and buying a tub of pure white table salt that has been refined and purified and crystallised and ground down to a nice size for us to shake on our chips. But that's not what it would have been like in the first century. Salt would have been obtained probably by an evaporation process. You'd get some salty water, you'd evaporate it, and you'd make cakes of salt, a bit like cattle licks, um, is how I understand it. And I'm even told you used to be able to buy cakes of salt in Britain. I'm too young to remember that, but maybe some of you do. But these cakes of salt would have impurities in them, bits of sand, bits of dust, bits of other chemicals. And it's possible that if you kept it on a shelf in the cupboard, where it got a bit damp, the actual salt would eventually dissolve out in the dampness and what you'd be left with was just dust and rubbish that was only any use to chuck out. I don't know if that's uh, helpful or not, but that's kind of what an awful lot of ink gets spent on. So what on earth is Jesus saying anyway? Is it a warning about purity? That even among his followers, there's the potential for the essence of the message? The mission to become so diluted or distorted that it's useless? Is he saying that, well, you've got to keep this salt pure and flavoursome, so you better just seal it away and protect it so it can't get corrupted or damaged? And whilst there could just about be a hint of the form of this purity question in what he's saying, it's quite clear that the latter is not the case. The whole point of salt is that you put it to work. You rub salt into meat to preserve it or to flavour it. You sprinkle it on your chips to make them taste nice. You scatter it on icy footpaths to help keep the ice away. In actual fact, to be salt is to be sacrificial, losing self for the good of the other. Jesus says, you are to be like salt, a stable compound, preserving, cleansing, flavour-enhancing, poured out in appropriate quantities to transform the earth. But if he'd said it in a great long sentence like that, nobody would remember it. So he said, you are like salt. 
But what about the metaphor of light? I can almost imagine Jesus with a twinkle in his eye and maybe a smile on his face as he just says, you know, no one lights a lamp and hides it under a bucket. That's just plain stupid. Lights are lit for one purpose and one purpose only, to bring illumination to the place where they are set. And he tells his disciples there to be light, light, not just in a room, not just within your own community, but for the whole world, to be like a beacon on a hilltop, visible for miles around, even to be seen from space. I have a very long flight ahead of me in the next um, 24 hours, and some of that will be at night. But in the past, I've flown up and down the UK a few times at night, and I've looked out of the window, and you can see hundreds of miles away, lights twinkling. That's kind of the image that we have here. Jesus' disciples are to shine so much that maybe it is just a pinprick, but can be seen from an enormous distance. Those of you with a good memory will recall that um, in Advent we spent a whole sermon thinking about different kinds of uses for light. The miner's lamp, navigation lights, lighthouses, street lamps and so on. You could think of others that you might want to add. Might it be that Jesus had these and more in mind when he says this statement? Your job is to help people to navigate the stormy seas of life. Your job is to guide people to safety on their journey. Your job is to be like a torch shone in front of someone's feet to help them take the next step. Just as salt is not meant to be locked away in an airtight container, light is not to be covered up and rendered useless. No blackout curtains are permitted in the church. There can be no accident that these characteristics are stated right at the start of this passage of teaching about learning to be church. I've got a few academic people here, although most of my lecturers are away today, which is a bit of a pain because I was thinking of them when I wrote the next bit. But if you have an academic module descriptor, it will start by stating the aims and the learning outcomes. This is a course for students who wish to achieve X. By the end of this course, participants will be able to do this. We'll understand that, and we'll have a working knowledge of the other. Now, we're not going to get sidetracked into thinking about prerequisites and co-requisites and all the other weird and wonderful things. But what we have here could perhaps be seen as Jesus' module descriptor and the beginning of his module called Learning to be Church. After some initial encouragement to his nervous students, he lays out the objectives and the learning outcomes, at least in a metaphorical form. The aim of this course is to teach you what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The learning outcomes are an understanding of saltiness and luminescence and how they are expressed in life. These might seem to be very lofty aims, very demanding outcomes, but I think they sound quite interesting, quite positive, and even quite exciting. 
but then comes a sting in the tail. Oh, by the way, if you've signed up for this course thinking I'm going to overthrow everything that's gone before, that I'm going to ditch the law of Moses or jettison what the prophets say, think again. My aim is not to annul or rescind the law, but rather to bring it to fulfilment. The law isn't going to change, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T is going to be removed, not even one comma will be erased. Well, actually, there weren't any commas, because if you read Hebrew and Greek, there are no punctuation marks in the original. But you kind of get the idea. The law is the law is the law, and it's not going to change until the end of time. I wonder how you feel when you hear that. Are you going, yep, that's right, yep, and this particular Deuteronomic prohibition definitely still applies today? Or are you just kind of fuming quietly, thinking, surely not that Deuteronomic prohibition, that can't possibly apply today? And how did Jesus' disciples react? I have a suspicion probably much the same. There would have been guys going, yeah, fantastic. That particular rule about donkeys, that's in forever. And others going, oh, for goodness sake, not that rule about donkeys. Whatever it was. I'm not going to repeal the law, says Jesus. I'm going to bring it to fulfilment, to its completion. And his hearers listen intently, wondering what's going to come next. What does come next is Jesus talking about the Pharisees and their attempts to interpret and understand the law to make it workable in everyday life. The Pharisees identified 613 rules in the Torah. So if you like, 613 acts of parliament. 248 thou shalts and 365 thou shalt nots. So I wonder how many of us know all 613 lines of the law according to Moses. The 248 thou shalt and the 365 thou shalt nots. Oh, and by the way, if anybody thinks that's one thou shalt not for every day of the year, it's a load of codswallop. A Jewish year isn't 365 days long. But what the Pharisees did was to spend their whole lives trying to work out how you did this in practice. They weren't just religious officials. They were the legal experts of their day within the nation of Israel. So, for example, when Jesus speaks disparagingly about them tithing their mint and their rue and their other herbs, as if, you know, you've missed the point on tithing... If you could go back and find out how they got to that point, they were actually thinking, well, what does it mean when in Deuteronomy 26 it says tithe or your, your harvest, everything that you grow, you should tithe. And so the Pharisees thought, well, yes, that, no, that. Yes, you do your herbs, but maybe there are, you don't do your roses, something like that. All those ridiculously complicated rules about rescuing animals that fell into wells on a Sabbath that if one person could pull it out, then they couldn't because that would be work. But if two people pulled out an animal that one person could have pulled out, that wouldn't be work because neither of them had fully worked on the Sabbath. It seems 
crackers to us. But the Pharisees were trying to find a way of making it work. And perhaps actually what Jesus is doing is trying to get us to think more sympathetically towards them and to understand the impossibility of what they were trying to do. Seemingly, the Pharisees understood the law to be both a burden and a yoke. And what they were trying to do was to lighten the load and ease the yoke by their endeavours. Now, that should ring a bell for us, because Jesus spoke of himself saying, take my, uh, take my yoke, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So Jesus is actually using Pharisaic language there. But what Jesus seems not to be doing is slating the Pharisees for their legalism. He's saying, well, they've done their best, but it's not good enough. All that diligent study and all that in-depth knowledge of the letter of the law has not met the intent of the law. Jesus expects his disciples to outshine, pun intended, the Pharisees several times over. So what does he say? I think we need to read the verses very carefully if we're to hear what he says, as recorded by Matthew, and not just read in our own opinions. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfil. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter... Not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So entrance to the kingdom of heaven is contingent on a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes. The integration of believing and behaving, understanding and expression of faith, must be about preserving the earth, this saltiness, and bringing illumination the the light, not about procedures that are kind of tick boxes defined by the religious establishment. That's what the Pharisees had had done through all their best efforts. They got this kind of tick list. If you did this, you were in, and if you didn't do this, that was it. But it's still an awful lot of pressure in what Jesus is saying. The session draws to it close, and he hands out the reading list. Torah, volumes, one to five. It's a bit scary. And yet there is hope. We recall that those metaphors are not just aspirations, but Jesus says they are who and what we already are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not what you're going to be one day. You're already things. What you need to do is to understand what that means. So before we give up hope and quietly tiptoe out of the classroom, deciding this course isn't for us after all, perhaps we do well to note that there is space in the kingdom, both for those who succeed and those who fail in keeping 
all that the law says. Read it carefully. Those who break the laws will be called least in the kingdom. Those who obey them will be the greatest. So it's not necessary to tick all the boxes to be part of this kingdom. There is a place for all of us, and maybe we appear to be greater or smaller in the result of that, but we're all part of it. Uh, And just before you think you can decide who is greatest and who is least, which do you think are the greatest and least commandments? Which are the ones that, if you break them and teach others to break them, will make you be less or you more? Because Jesus doesn't say. 613 rules. And he doesn't tell us which is the least, which is the one that will kind of make you a bit of a lesser person. But he leaves us in no doubt which is the greatest. Matthew records it like this. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is what matters. This is what Jesus wants us to hold on to. This principle of love, the love ethic, is the thing that drives the rest of it. As we learn to be church, as we endeavour to be salt, to savour and to preserve, and light to illuminate and to guide, we're not expected to know and understand the minutiae of the whole Bible. Thank goodness for that. What we are required to do is to work at understanding what it means to love God, to love our neighbour and ourselves, and to let that inform our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, we give thee thanks for daylight, sunlight, moonlight, But most of all, we give thanks for your light. As we use our electric lights, may we give thanks for inventors who have made the quality of our lives better. Help us as individuals to show your light, either by word, deed, or giving to others less fortunate than we. Let us pray for all who have been affected by flood. May they see a flicker of thy light. We give thanks for those who are trying to find solutions to problems in Syria and other troubled parts of the world. Help those in refugee camps in Lebanon and those who are working in them. Be with those who have problems getting work or in difficult situations or through work. May the work of Friday Friendship, AANA, continue to reach out to vulnerable people and be with those who faithfully serve others. We ask that your light goes with Katrina as she goes to New Zealand. 
As we leave the gathering place, help us to let our light shine in the coming week. Amen. May the Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace now and always. Oh,